0: What works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works.
1: What works for you. This is What
0: Works. No matter where you go online today, you are going to be bombarded with messages about getting
1: This is literally one of the laziest ways I've seen people make money online because of the fact that they don't really have to do much. Have you ever thought about making up to $525 per day by typing names online? Let's learn how to make a $1,000 a week garage sale flipping with Gary Vaynerchuk.
0: Small business owners and independent workers get paid in all sorts of ways. But the numbers we hear about most often flatten all of that variety. When we hear... I have a seven-figure business. It's easy to imagine an overflowing savings account and hearty investment portfolio, signs of personal wealth. And when we hear, I make $10,000 a month on Substack, it's easy to assume that $10,000 comes from writing an article or two every week, a sign of the leisurely laptop lifestyle. Those numbers, of course, don't tell the whole story. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is Extra Context, short bonus episodes of What Works that add nuance to topics we often take for granted. Today, I want to talk about getting paid. Not the dollars and cents, but the form and structure. And the best place to start is by looking at the difference between wages and profit. We need to start here because, without understanding the difference between wages and profit, we can't properly analyze the form and structure of how we get paid. Wages have a long history. In fact, you can see standardized wages as far back as ancient Egypt, Greece, and Rome, and even further back to ancient Mesopotamia. Standardized wages were written into the Code of Hammurabi for things like shipbuilding, freight hauling, and chartering. The earliest wages weren't paid by the hour, because standardized time hadn't been invented yet. Instead, wages were paid by the day, by the week, or often by the amount of goods produced. Regardless of how it was paid, wages have always been paid on the premise of productive labor. You agree to work for a period of time or for a specified production goal at an agreed upon rate, more or less voluntarily, although often much less voluntarily. Today, of course, we're most familiar with the hourly wage. You work a shift and get paid a set rate per hour of that shift, plus overtime beyond 40 hours per week. During that time, you're subject to the productivity expectations of management. But piece rate wages still exist. In fact, I'd say gig work is most often paid by piece rate. The pay for the piece might be pay for a drive across town, an errand run, or a voiceover recording. But those tasks can still be seen as productive pieces that are paid based on completion rather than time spent working. Now small business owners and independent workers often don't think in terms of wages. They get paid in various ways and all of that money goes into the same bank account. They pay expenses from that account and then allot what's left over to their personal income. It seems like that leftover amount is profit or at least net revenue. So what is profit? Profit is not just what's left over after the bills are paid. Profit is value that's generated above and beyond costs, with labor being one of the biggest and most variable costs. I know, that probably just sounds like a fancier way of saying the leftover money, but it's not. When we talk about what's leftover, we're talking about an after the fact financial calculation. It's useful in its own way, but it doesn't tell us much about how profit is being generated. We might have a set profit margin goal at the start, but the realization of that profit happens in accounting. On the other hand, when you consider profit as a function of the cost of labor, you start to see how profit is generated as opposed to discovered when you get your P&L report. Now, Karl Marx described how profit is generated in capitalism as money made from surplus labor. Here's the school of life for a bit more context.
1: Marx insists that at its crudest, capitalism means paying a worker one price for doing something and then selling it to somebody else at a much higher price. He believed that capitalists shrink the wages of the laborers as much as possible in order to skim off a wide profit margin.
0: Imagine you're working in a retail store. Part of your job is helping customers pick out what they're going to purchase from the store. About three hours into your eight hour shift, you've sold the amount of goods that cover the costs of the labor for your shift, as well as the overhead associated with those goods. If you think of your daily wage as an equal exchange with the value you're producing for your employer, you should be able to go home after you hit that mark, right? But of course, That is not how it works. After you've covered the cost of your labor for the day, you keep working. In this example, you work an additional five hours. All of the goods you sell during that time are sold thanks to your surplus labor. And there's the profit. Now, just to keep the math simple, let's imagine you earn $10 per hour. So you earn $80 for an eight hour shift. You sell $80 worth of goods in the first three hours, but it only costs the company $30. If you keep selling at the same rate throughout your shift, then the company earns more than $200, even though your labor power only costs $80. Now, other overhead notwithstanding, that's a $120 return on the value of your labor power. Marx focused on surplus labor as the means of generating profit because his economic theory is based on understanding the relationship between capital and workers from the worker's perspective. A conventional economic view is going to take capital's perspective and show how different forces can be leveraged to produce greater profit. Both perspectives are useful. But when we're looking at more humane ways of understanding the 21st century economy— I think we have to make sure that we're accounting for all of the humans in the worker capital relationship, and we need to treat those humans as equally valid in that relationship. With that in mind, any means of generating profit for the company is going to be based on surplus labor of workers. Now, profit on its own is neutral. A fair profit margin covers risk and future investment. Maintaining steady profit can create job security for workers and insulate them from economic bad weather. But profit as an incentive gets into dicey territory. When an employer is motivated to increase profit regularly, it's going to look to increase your surplus labor. Your sales quota, say, goes from selling $80 worth of product every three hours to selling $100 worth of product every three hours. Not only is the company squeezing more value out of your time, you actually might suffer moral injury as you become a more aggressive salesperson in order to meet the quota. Now, sure. The company could raise prices to increase profit, and they do, in fact, do that. That would actually make your job easier. But raising prices is much riskier than increasing worker productivity or letting wages stagnate. When a company raises prices, of course, it risks customers going to a competitor or deciding that they don't really need what the company sells at all. Workers, on the other hand, have become conditioned to accept ever-increasing productivity expectations, and even stagnant wages. Plus, the stigma of not working in our culture is so great that employers have a lot of power to make workers' jobs harder and less sustainable before a worker will quit. As Marx knew deep inside each of us, we don't want to be arbitrarily let go. We're terrified of being abandoned. All right, at this point, you are probably wondering what the heck this has to do with you as a small business owner or independent worker. As small business owners, or to a lesser extent, independent workers, we are both wage laborers and owners. And I think this distinction is really important in understanding the form and structure of how we get paid. I mentioned earlier that many business owners and independent workers gather up all of their revenue in one account, pay their bills, and pocket what's left over as income. But without understanding how your income is split between wages and profit, you risk subjecting yourself to working harder than you have to. In other words, you'll squeeze yourself into greater productivity to increase your own surplus labor. Of course, the economists and theorists who pioneered this analysis of labor value were big picture thinkers. They weren't thinking of the craftspeople, consultants, or artists, the proprietors who sold the goods which they themselves produced. They were looking at how capital and labor worked at the macroeconomic level to devise public policy and business strategy. But that doesn't mean this context can't help us think about how we get paid in more sustainable and humane ways. Here's how I like to think of how I personally get paid. My goal is to pay myself a salary that covers my needs. I determine my needs based on my values and personal priorities. So my salary and your salary might look different, as well as what constitutes our needs. Since I'm in the U.S., I'm able to have my business taxed as an S corporation, even though it's essentially a solo proprietor, limited liability company. And that means that twice a month, I run payroll from my business bank account and get a direct deposit into my personal bank account. I'm taxed on my salary the same way any employee would be taxed on their salary. I may or may not take profit distributions throughout the year. Simply depends on what my business produces above and beyond the direct cost of my work, my salary. Now, this isn't precisely true, but the salary my company pays me is my wage. It's the labor cost of the time it takes to meet my needs. Knowing this, I know that I have options about how hard I work or what I choose to work on. As I've shared in previous episodes, right now, that means I'm choosing to work on low-profit projects because my salary is being paid through a select few other projects that cover my needs. I'm not stressed about money, even though I will probably have just as many months in the red this year as months in the black. If I didn't know the wage I needed to earn or have that wage as a goal for my money-making... I'd be really stressed out about money, and I'd be working on all sorts of things I didn't want to be working on. I'd be pushing myself to create more and more surplus labor. Yuck. Now, the same is true at Yellowhouse Media. Sean earns the same salary I earn, but through that company. And they are both separate LLCs, both being taxed as S-Corps. Our current client load pays that wage, plus the wages of our employees. We also earn profit primarily as a vehicle for savings to support ourselves and our employees in case there's a problem. We know the baseline number of clients we need to work with to make payroll, and so long as we're at or above that number of clients, we don't need to push for surplus labor. Sean can enjoy five or six hour days, and I don't have to worry too much about the day to day operations of the business. Without understanding the difference between our necessary wages and extra earnings in the form of profit, we would no doubt work harder than we need to and push growth faster than is sustainable. The truth is that Yellow House Media could be generating a lot more revenue than it currently is. But, we've made the decision to continue to grow slowly and prioritize working fewer hours. Now, in both these examples, I essentially calculated an annual wage that's paid out every couple of weeks. And I know that's where things can get tricky for business owners and independent workers. We're so familiar with hourly wages that when we start to think about the value of our time, we immediately go to, what should I be earning per hour? And then that question quickly becomes, what should I charge per hour? I think having a ballpark hourly wage is helpful, but it's not everything. And hourly wages make it harder for us to think creatively about our time precisely because most of us will instinctively manage ourselves to increase surplus labor, leading to unsustainable working conditions. An annual wage or salary gives you the flexibility to think creatively about your working time while also taking into account the money you need to comfortably get through the year. Beyond that, you can make intentional decisions about the profit you pursue. There might be some months or even some years where you decide profit just isn't worth doing the surplus labor. And there might be other months where you're energized about creating something that will earn profit, maybe even on an ongoing basis. And that leads me to the final thing I want to add some context to in this episode, passive income.
1: Whether you are deeply in debt, broke, middle class, or rich, the idea of passive income is universally appealing. It's minimum input for maximum output.
0: When small business owners and independent workers think profit, they often think passive income. And true passive income is really nice. Passive income is based on asset ownership, the rental property you own, the intellectual property you license, the capital you invest. For instance, every quarter, I get a check from Creative Live with my revenue share on the courses that have been watched or sold during the previous three months. Now, years ago, I made an initial investment in those courses in the form of labor, but I don't do anything else to generate that money now. The courses are assets that I am a partial owner of and, as such, earn money from their sale. But what many people think of as passive income is really leveraged income. And what's being leveraged to varying degrees is your labor, the labor of anyone who works for you, and the free labor of your customers.
1: I love that one minute they're telling you, this job is effortless, it's so easy. And the next they're ranting about how hard they work. Interesting.
0: That's Tiffany Ferguson, a vlogger with a solid YouTube video on what she calls the cult of passive income.
1: The appeal of passive income comes from the promise of less work, less hours, and the potential for making more money even while you sleep.
0: Consider the sale of a digital workbook. How does that sale come about? Well, likely a certain percentage of the people who visit your website will click to learn more about that workbook. Another percentage of those people will purchase the workbook. Seems passive enough, right? But what generates that traffic? It could be search engine optimization, which is based on creating content for your website. That's labor. It could be social media, again, based on the labor of creating content. It might be advertising, which is likely paid for through your labor on other projects. It might be publicity, which is based on your labor earning publicity. Most likely, though, it's a combination of all of those labor outputs
1: despite the messaging that emphasizes how easy and passive this is. The reality is that trying to pursue passive income actually requires a lot of time, energy, and often involves startup costs or investments. So for the average working class person who is exhausted, broke, and overworked already, this is not very feasible.
0: Now, there is certainly the possibility that you launch a digital workbook and generate a word of mouth flywheel that truly makes revenue passive. But more often than not, those sales require significant hidden labor primarily done by the creator. That's you. If your goal is to sell that workbook 200 times, how much work will you have to do to generate those sales? How many hours will you labor to produce that quote-unquote passive result? And how did those 200 sales contribute to your wage or your profit? Is that labor necessary to pay your wage? And if so, is it how you want to spend your time? Or is that your own surplus labor you squeeze profit out of? And what of the surplus labor your customers do as a result of paying for a workbook rather than say a live course or a service? Now, as always, this is a purposely reductive example. It's neither precise on economic terms nor on tactical terms. But my hope is that you now have significantly more context for thinking about how your time and labor translate to your wage, your profit, and the growth of your business. Next week, I've got the next installment in the Context Clues series all about the history of positive thinking and how positive thinking might keep us disempowered as business owners.